and gentlemen. Attention, everyone. Welcome to No Picks After Dark. It's your boy, Nick Burke, and you are now tuned in to the hottest podcast in the world with Aaron Dante, giving you the hottest interviews with the dopest people, sharing their experiences from your neighborhood all around to the world. Voted Best Baltimore Podcast by you, the listeners. Now, your host, Aaron Dante. Yo, Aaron, talk to him. Welcome back to the No Picks After Dark podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Dante, and we have an amazing show for you this week. We have comedian Ivan Martin. We have Ms. Natasha Axelrod, lawyer, legal contributor. We have Mr. Trevor White from VBS Tax and Accounting. And for the featured guest for this week is Ms. Kara Olber from Be More Art. I'm so excited for you guys to listen to the contributors and the stories this week. They're always amazing, always representing now, for the next voice we're going to hear is Mr. Ivan Martin. What's going on, Mr. Ivan? How you feeling? Good day, good night, good evening. What is going on, beautiful and lovely people? What is going on, him, her, they, them, you, yours, and ours, everybody? Hope you're having a beautiful day. How you doing, Aaron Dante? What's going on? I'm doing good, brother. Appreciate you. How you feeling? Keeping it going, brother. Just trying to keep it going, man. Having a great time celebrating this Woman's Month. And speaking of that, if you have not gone out to see Coming to America, please do Bella Murphy. With her debut acting, killed it, keeping the legacy of coming to America, going in that family. And Eddie Murphy said, you don't need no handouts here. You got to audition like everybody else. Now, I don't know about you, but I take that as a huge level of respect to say that I respect you enough to make you earn it. And for her to show up and say, I respect you enough to get the job. So congratulations to that. On top of that, with a little bit of funness and you tell a joy, she came right out and said, no, 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 no. I'm a white Hispanic lady. Variety magazine mixed things straight all the way up and said, this is a woman of color receiving this Golden Globe Award. And out of nowhere, sisters rolled out of the dust and ashes of this pandemic and said, wait a minute, hold up. (laughs) And it was a beautiful thing, you know. She did admit that she is a white Hispanic woman. So, note there, didn't know that could happen. But that's, hey, didn't know that could happen. But congratulations on that. And Variety, get your stuff together. Now I'm going to keep this moving right on along and give a huge shout out to Maxine Waters and Megan Thee Stallion. Now, it ain't nothing like a politician coming out and being like, girl, you can dance as hard as you want. I got your back. Remember how I helped out two live crew? Yeah, they was they couldn't say none of that stuff. <laughs> Shots out to Maxine Waters. And to close it out, huge shout out to Cardi B for having her own doll yes i said it if you did not know it go check it out before it sells out her own doll now you know the first thing that came to my mind is what are we how are we gonna flip this around like what are you gonna do with the wop doll like are you gonna get a bucket and a mop for this work at home play like what's going on like what's what how you know they're gonna try to figure out some type of way to make it cool like like you know this is my work and play doll you know like what no it ain't that is cardi b shots out to you shots out to everybody else i love you please have a good time celebrating women's month we got some more days going here and enjoy yourself have a beautiful time my name's ivan martin you can catch me at comedian ivan martin on Instagram as well as on Facebook and also I deleted all of my other Black Panic pages so like don't even try to reach me there no more peace love you man visit your neighborhood sanctuary and do wellness for a luxurious experience for everybody treat yourself and a loved one with a massage facial 
or an entire day of pampering with our deluxe spa day packages that include lunch from the restaurant next door, fire and rice. For more information on booking or purchasing gift cards, visit their website at indowellness.com or call at 443-438-4048. They look forward to welcoming you and your loved ones to their beautiful new space at Soha Union, located at 4801 Harper Road, Suite 1. Ms. Natasha Axraw, lawyer, legal expert, what do you have for us today? Aaron, as always, it's so great to be here. Thank you so much for having me on this amazing show. And this week on the Legal Minute, we're going to talk very briefly about qualified immunity and the Supreme Court's recent case where it said that qualified immunity did not apply. So qualified immunity is this legal doctrine that was created by the Supreme Court that acts as a shield against civil liability for government conduct. And often this comes up in the context of police misconduct cases. What it's meant in practice, though, is that it's extraordinarily difficult to hold government officials civilly liable when they violate someone's rights. So what I want to draw attention to, though, is the recent decision of the Supreme Court where the court said qualified immunity didn't apply. This is incredibly rare. This is back in November, and it kind of went unnoticed because I guess there was some election drama going on. But this case is called Taylor versus Riojas. And this case involves correctional officers in a prison who kept a prisoner for six full days in, quote, shockingly unsanitary cells. The first cell was covered nearly floor to ceiling in massive amounts of feces. It was all over the floor, the ceiling, the window, the walls, and even packed inside the water faucet. There was only a clogged drain in the floor for bodily waste and cold He slept naked on the floor in sewage because there was no bunk. So Trent Taylor, who was the prisoner in this case, sues for violating the Eighth Amendment prohibition against cruel and unusual punishment. But because of this qualified immunity doctrine, the lower court said the officers could not be held liable for their conduct. The Supreme Court, though, disagreed and said this was a situation where qualified immunity shouldn't apply. But it's important to note that the Supreme Court didn't deal with the problem of qualified immunity itself. It merely said in this particular case, it doesn't apply. And you can see from the facts of the case, this was pretty egregious conduct. And even then, the lower court said, no, 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 qualified immunity applies. And so it took the Supreme Court stepping in in a rare instance of saying it doesn't apply, but in the, only in this case. So we still have the overall issue of qualified immunity, and that's this week's Legal Minute. And you can find me on Instagram at, at Natasha underscore Axelrod. Thanks, Thanks so much for having me again, Erin. The No Picks After Dark podcast is proudly sponsored by Maggie's Farm. Located at 4341 Harford Road, Maggie's Farm offers a unique dining experience with delicious handcrafted cocktails and mouth-awarding cuisine from falafel to scallops and everyone's favorite honey sriracha cauliflower wings. Open for dinner from 4 p.m. until 10 p.m. Wednesday through Saturday and serving brunch Saturday 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. and Sunday from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. with delectable chicken and waffles, shrimp and grits, biscuits and gravy, and more. Check out Maggie's Farm on Instagram and Facebook for daily and weekly food specials as well. Hey, folks, uh, and we're back at No Picks in the Dark podcast. And I uh, got my main man, Mr. Trevor White from VBS Taxon County. What you got for us today, sir? We're going to talk about the big news that just dropped on Thursday 
the Biden administration finally, finally signed on to the Recovery Act. Wow. Wow. So let us know what's going on with the Recovery Act. Uh, Anything new in there? Three main things to know about the new stimulus bill. The first thing is the new stimulus payments, $1,400 per person, all dependents on the tax return, including adult dependents and children over 17. That was the biggest thing before. Why come I don't have a stimulus payment for my 17, my 18, my kids that are in college? Because they took the old child tax credit rules that stopped at children at the age of 17. And they just applied that to the first two stimuluses. But this stimulus bill, they will apply it to all children or all dependents, even adult dependents. So that's a big deal. Unemployment payments. The unemployment benefits have been extended to September 6th. So those people whose uh, unemployment benefits were going to end, those have been extended to September 6th, the additional benefit from the federal government. And all unemployment benefits that were previously taxed by the Fed and by the state are now not taxable on the first 10200 Okay, there is an income limit on that, $75,000 per individual, $150 per couple. So that's $10,200 per individual if both of them were on unemployment. But that's a big deal. Why? Because half of the people have already filed taxes already. And then the majority of people that receive unemployment possibly have already filed because there was some more benefit for them to file early, but now they have to redo their tax returns in order to get that taxable income removed off of there. So that's a big deal. The child tax credit, the new improved child tax credit, okay, is now $3,000 per child. So the question is, oh, do I have to go back and redo my tax return? No. This child tax credit is going to be distributed out starting in June or July of this summer based on the children that you have on your return. And this is going to go from children under six years old are going to get $3,600 per child. Children between uh, six and 17 are going to get $3,000 per child. Now the, the current child tax credit is only $2,000 per child up to 17 or under 17. But now this new stimulus, I mean, this new child tax credit includes all the way up to 17 and it's an increase from 3,600 for children six and under and then children between six and 17 will get $3,000. That's huge. Half of the payment will be done monthly starting in June or July and then the other benefit will be taken when you file your taxes for 2021. So those are three major things. A lot is being said in the news. A lot of stuff is being you know reported. Even with Maryland unemployment, you have to be aware, Maryland stopped um, taxing unemployment a month ago. But the thing is, a lot of these forms have not been updated yet. So even though they're reporting stuff on the news, you got to give the Fed, the IRS, and the software companies time to update these forms in order for this information to be applied. Maryland just pushed back their, um, their reporting date to July 15th. The Fed has not said anything yet, and that also creates some confusion. People are trying to figure out what should they do. Should they wait to file? If you are going to file an amendment for your unemployment, or if you want to wait to file until these new forms um, have been created, call up your tax preparers. Keep checking back if you're one of these DIYs and you do it yourself. 
check back on TurboTax or, or on uh, hnrblock.com or whatever you use and look and read the updated information before you file and then you're going to have to refile and that's going to be more cost on you because if you file an amendment with your preparer, they're going to charge you a fee to do an amendment. So a lot going on right now. Stimulus mayhem. Some people have already received their stimulus payments this weekend. Um, so the system's already laid and already, you know, the foundation's already there. So people have already started receiving their stimulus payments. If you don't get yours, same thing. Be patient. There's a lot of moving pieces to this plan. So just be patient. What about um, a lot of the people who um, we talk about who um, haven't filed, but they've already had a kid during this whole process? How is that going to retroact with they haven't, they haven't, they haven't put their kid that was born? How is that going to work out? <laughs> Here's the situation, and that's why previously, in previous discussions, the, the context was file early and file often. Because when these new stimulus payments do drop, you want them to be able to apply any changes that you had in 2020. So when you file, that information will be sent to the federal government but I don't, and it's not been spelled out yet, how they're going to react to people that file after the stimuluses have been sent. They haven't provided any links yet to update your information. They're pulling that information from your 2020 return. If you haven't filed it, they, um, they're looking at your 2019 returns. So there is going to be a little gap because what's happening now is the people that didn't receive their, their, um, their stimulus payment when you file your taxes, it's not a stimulus payment. It's a recovery. Um, it's a recovery credit. So the recovery credit is applied to your tax on that return. The stimulus payments are paid up front, but it's the, it's the same thing, but the application is different. So if you have to wait to receive your stimulus when you file your 2020 tax return, based on the changes that you had in 2020, we just have to wait and see. All right. All right, folks. And where can we where can we where can we find you on social media? I'm I'm trying to put out as much information as I can on IG. Sometimes I'm a little hesitant on just throwing information out because there's a, you don't want to rush this information. But most of my information is on IG, Mister Tax Pro. Um, you can call my office if you need any help or any support. Four four three two hundred thirty two fifty one. Or stop by my office if you're in the Baltimore area, 6004 Liberty Road. At Fishnet, every plate served starts with the freshest, high-quality fish sourced from local waters whenever possible. You get fine dining excellence delivered in a cozy, unpretentious, fast casual setting. Delicious does not even begin to describe it. Everything I've tried is made from scratch and incredible. The best fish I've ever had. Check them out for lunch or dinner at Mount Vernon Marketplace. Get caught in the fishnet. You'll be glad you did. Menu and details at eatfishnet.com. Welcome, folks, to No Picks After Dark Podcast. Again, my name is Aaron Dante. And today's show, we have the main event. Main event, folks. I am so honored to have this person on my show. You know, I heard about this thing called Be More Art. And I'm like, Be More Art, what is Be More Art? And all I know is people are like, you got to check them out. You got to check this magazine out. 
So I check this magazine out, and I'm like, okay, they got this fly black dude on the cover. Like, all right, I got to check this, find out who these people are, you know. And then I heard, you got to hear, you got to find out the editor. You got to find the editor. You know, she is Baltimore's or with royalty of art. Oh, and stop. I, and I said, wow, you know, I got I to gotta find out who this person is. And, you know, after sliding her DMs and finding out, hey, you know, I'm not a weirdo. She was like, all right, you're legit. And without further ado, Miss Kara Ober is in the house. Let me break down a couple of things. You know, she writes directly about artists and museum culture. And in the way that intersect and collide assessing how the impacts of art communities establish hierarchies and values. She's been doing this since 2007. And uh, is that right, about 2007? Indeed. Indeed. And um, she's crushing it right now in this art scene. And everybody knows her, you know. And I really appreciate her taking time out, her busy day and schedule to sit down with the No Pixar Dark podcast. So without further ado, again, Miss Kara Ober, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? Well, you already said you're good. You're embarrassing me. You're. We got to make, hey, we shine. <laughs> you got the bright light in front of you. We got to make you sure you shine. <laughs> I'm so happy that you were on the show. I mean, that that's what's all about. Thank you. Good, good. So, all right, let's tell the folks a little bit about you. I mean, I gave them a little, a little short thing, but, you know, you are an art writer, curator, founder, editor, a publisher at Be More Art. Okay, so tell us about you. Where Are you originally from Baltimore? Are you, you know, give us a little background. Um, yes, so I, I grew up in Maryland, um, I'm from Westminster, Maryland, which is about an hour north of Baltimore, out in Carroll County. Um, when I grew up there, it was a lot of farms, and now it is a lot of strip malls. And uh, my parents are still out there. Um, but as a, as a teenager, as a kid and a teen, I, I would come to Baltimore all the time. And, and um, I was definitely influenced a lot by John Waters' films growing up. And... Um, I was, uh, you know, I was sort of like a little arty punk kid. Um, and so we came to Baltimore. We went to all the thrift stores. We hung out and checked out all those cute skater boys. And um, so, yeah, I spent, you know, Louis Bookstore Cafe and The Zone and all of these places really sort of um, formed this impression that Baltimore was this multifaceted and, and rich and diverse and, and kind of weird place and and that always appealed to me nice nice i I like to hear that i like to hear that about baltimore uh so the art scene so were you when you're growing up like were you an artist were you in the art i mean i mean i read something that you and a friend maybe did some like y'all did some drawings or something like that when you were younger is that true yeah okay see i did my homework a little bit (laughs) i did my homework yeah when when, i mean this is like i i I think a, a lot of people um, when they're searching for their, uh, you know, their, their career or their role in life, a lot of people sort of look to other places to try to figure it out. And I did the same, but, but the truth is when I was a kid, I used to, um, my best friend and I used to write books together for fun. That's what we would do. And, um, we recreated like this entire series of, of illustrated books narrated by a dog and, um, and then sort of later on, I, I did get really into art. I was um, the, the student who was always in the dark room in all the, like, independent, you know, periods or whatever in high school. And so I was, like, the dark room person and, um, yeah, majored in art in college. I was always really interested in art and artists, but I really didn't know any 
And my, <clears throat> sorry, my family is um, educators. My dad was a basketball coach. And um, so I grew up also like playing sports and um, education was really important to my family growing up. But for me, um, figuring out how to be an artist was always a mystery because I didn't know anybody. My family didn't know anybody. And, and I think um, the impression of artists is that, you know, it's a really, it's a hard life. They're going to be poor. You know, they're going to be this sort of stereotypical um, disaster and, um, and or eccentric crazy person. So um, for me, the only artists I really knew were professors at the college that was in my town. So that was Western Maryland College. It's now McDaniel College. I took some classes there as well. But um, so yeah, after college, I became a school teacher because I just, you know, it didn't seem feasible to, to grow up and, and be an artist and pursue my passion. And um, so this is something I feel like it's really inspired me to do the work that I do in terms of like sharing all that information, not necessarily even focusing on the artwork itself, but focusing on the career, the how-to, the strategies for survival and success and paying your bills and, you know, making the best art you possibly can and having that art, you know, function in the world. Nice, nice. So we, what happens? You, you, you're a teacher, you're teaching high school kids, you're out of college, arts, you know, is here. 2006, 2007, what's going on with the creation of what we have right now in front of us? Like, are you working with another art? Because I read something that you worked with a different company before Be More Art started. Right. So um, I taught high school for seven years in my 20s, and I looked about 12 years old. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I did occasionally get, like, yelled at by, like, principals or whatever. Be like, hey, where's your hall pass? Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was a great job. I taught wonderful students, um, but it, it never quite felt like a good fit for me. Um, so I went back to school. I did this program at MICA that was a low residency MFA. So I, I wanted an MFA because I wanted to teach college. And um, so I was able to do this graduate program over four summers. It's a program designed specifically for art teachers and other people who don't want to go into debt for, for an MFA. And um, so at the end of that time, I finished in 2005. So that was when I retired from teaching art <laughs> in high schools. And I, I started teaching art in colleges. And at that time, I also started writing about art. So there was this um, tiny publication in Baltimore called Radar. And it was like this pocket size printed black and white uh, periodical that came out, I think, four times a year. And I thought it was cool, and I've always had too many opinions. Um, so I, I approached the editor to see if I could write for them, and he was wonderful. Um, I kind of thought it would be a situation where if you weren't cool or they didn't know you, you wouldn't be accepted. And, and I, you know, for me, that, that experience was sort of grounding and pretty revolutionary, but also I think it's indicative of, of Baltimore that if you show up and you want to do the work you are going to be a part of the community. It's not about who you know or how cool you are or just any of those sort of um, extraneous, you know, symbols of success or, or coolness or whatever. So I started writing for them, and um, the editor 
Um, it was doing really well, but then he ended up stopping the project when he became a father. So he became a, a home dad. And um, so about that time, I created Be More Art with some graduate school friends. We wanted to have a, a way to um, put our opinions down. You know, there were tons of art blogs uh, all over the place at that time, around 2007. And Baltimore didn't really have one. And we wanted to create like a like almost like a calendar too so people would know what was going on it's hard to pay attention and and know what's going on Baltimore's got so many different communities and so much going on and a lot of times I would see really amazing art and talk to other people about it and then they didn't know about it they missed it so that was sort of the goal in the beginning that led to other writing gigs. Um, it led to a job at the Urbanite magazine. Um, so I was their arts and culture editor for about two years after my son was born um, in 2010. And as so many great magazines do, that publication sunsetted um, in 2012. And people loved the Urbanite so much. It was a free monthly full-color periodical I was doing online work for them too. I, I had kept kind of be more art going on the side. So I decided that um, I would just build be more art into that same role that the Urbanite was filling in arts and culture. And I did this for about a year by myself. Um, and it was largely unsuccessful <laughs> in terms of funding. Um, but I learned a lot in that year and sort of cultivated this whole group of, of collaborators and, and supporters at that time. And I will tell you, that's one of my, um, I'm glad I finally heard that. I've read that story uh, many times, but it's really cool because you kept on pushing. You didn't stop. You just kept on doing it because it's something you like, something you enjoyed. And there's many times when entrepreneurs just give up. After six months, they're done. They don't want to do it anymore. I, am, I felt that way doing this podcast. I was six months in, I was like, nobody's listening to me. Only my good friends are, you know? And um, it was a truth moment, truth, like, I can hang this up. I just bought $500 for the equipment. <laughs> what am I going to do with this? But, you know, it resonated with me when a listener reached out and said, my daughter listened to your podcast in my car, in her car. And I said, what? She was like, my daughter, who was a high schooler, sat and listened. I said, damn, it's just resonating with somebody. I'm gonna keep it going. And for your story, where you're going through it, you're trying to, you're, you're clawing, you're trying to make it happen, making it work. And I love it because that should inspire people. Don't give up. Don't give up on your dream. That's something that you have a passion for. Somebody's out there. Somebody's gonna be like, all right, let's get, let's get some money. Let's get some money to this. So that leads us into the money thing. So, I, so. Angel from out of nowhere came somewhere from what I, I don't know the exact story, but I'll let you fill, fill in the blanks. Yeah. So, so first of all, I should say that I think, um, a lot of artists, uh, creative entrepreneurs, we, we see what other people have, or we see the appearance of what people have. And, um, <clears throat> for those of us who don't feel like we have what we need, that can be really frustrating and, and really, um, uh, it can be really discouraging, and 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 what I would say is, you know, the the outer appearance of something is is not um, necessarily what's going on on the inside. And a lot of artists think that if they just had, you know, this money, then they could do their best work. And and so money is often um, not 
not the answer to the problem, although a lot of times we, we think it is. But that said, everybody needs groceries. Everybody needs to pay their rent. Um, everybody needs heat, artists included. So um, it is really important. So after about a year, so, I, you know, I had done this uh, online column for the Urbanite Arts and Culture, and I knew who all the advertisers were, and I knew what they were paying uh, specifically for online. And, and Be More Art was just online at that time. So I thought... If I started producing this excellent content every day or a couple times a week um, and we attracted, you know, a decent level of traffic. And so at that point, I had contributors writing. Um, I was doing most of it. We didn't have a budget. We weren't able to pay anybody. Um, So I thought I'd be able to attract these advertisers. And after a year of of basically full-time work, and I I was also um, teaching classes at colleges too, my husband pulled me aside and was just like, you know, you have a kid now, and you're doing full-time work, you know, for Baltimore City, for Baltimore's art community, and, and you're not making any money. Like, this this isn't fair to you. This isn't really fair to our family. Um, and this was really um, hard for me to hear. Um, but I knew he was right. And, you know, I don't know what would have happened, Um differently because again I don't think I could have quit this thing but um at a certain point I I confided in some people that I trusted professionally that I didn't think I could keep doing it just it just wasn't financially working out I would still freelance or whatever but this thing was going to end and um I don't know if you believe in like metaphysics that sometimes when you state what your intention is, when you say what you need to people in an honest way, that it somehow manifests itself into what you need. I mean, that sounds like some sort of crazy, culty thing. But in my case, um, I got an email from someone who works at a local foundation, the Robert W. Deutsch Foundation, And they are a fantastic organization based in Baltimore. They support arts, culture. Um, They support a lot of other issues of, you know, social and economic justice, uh, digital equity. And um, they had been paying attention to the work that I was doing. And they wanted to support uh, more strategically the arts in Baltimore. And they felt that for the health of an ecosystem, you needed to have... Um, some sort of press. So both to criticize and hold people accountable and also just to, to educate and, and build community and get the word out. So um, they, you know, essentially wanted to learn more about me and, and the way that I work and what my values were. And um, they were able to, to get me started financially in a way that allowed me to pay myself for the first time, do some redesign, um, and to pay my contributors. So since that time, um, Be More Artists have been able to, to pay our writers and photographers for their work. No Picks After Dark podcast is sponsored by the Charm City Craft Mafia, Baltimore's best local craft fair, presenting Pile of Craft, a virtual craft show on the last Saturday of April, featuring handmade stationery, apparel, jewelry, ceramics, wall art, body care, small batch food gifts, and more. Crafted by makers in Baltimore and the region. Pile of Craft will be on April 24th, 2021. For more information, please go to charmcitycraftmafia.com and on Instagram and Facebook at Charm City Craft Mafia.
And folks, we are back uh, from our quick break. And uh, we just left off at from 2013, 14, around that area when you just got that nice check. And you were like, okay, husband, I, I got some money now. We, I, I, I'm ready to rock and roll, you know, and we're still online. We're not in print yet. What happens next to get you to print? So, um, and, and just, just to clarify, it's working with, I mean, every foundation does things differently. I, I feel really fortunate, fortunate to, to be in a relationship with the Robert W. Deutsch Foundation because for them it is, it is about relationships it, so some, some, um, uh, organizations that, you know, it's like drive by philanthropy, like here's a check. See ya. Good luck. Um, with, with them, it's very much like, what do you need? How, who can we introduce you to? What kind of mentorship do you need? What kind of training? Um, so it's really not, um, you know, again, it's, it's not really about money. It's about, um, sort of looking at, at big picture issues that can help your, your project or your business to succeed. Anywho, um, so yeah, around um, 2014, I became obsessed with creating a print journal. So typically magazines do the exact opposite. They go, you know, starting out in print and then they have an online component to kind of back up their, their print. Every magazine does this. So for me, it was the exact opposite. And um, I attempted to be really um, responsible and conducted a lot of research, um, which for me usually means one-on-one meetings with people, coffee, and talking to people who are in publishing and in publications. And um, without exception, all of the people that were giving me advice told me the same thing. They all said, don't do it. So (laughs) uh, clearly I'm not great at taking directions. <laughs> and, um, so in, in 25, 2015, um, I was able to get, uh, support for the first, very first issue. So that came out in November of 2015. The theme of the f- first issue was place. And, um, at that time I didn't have any experience with design or publications design. So I, I ended up, um, working with a fantastic graphic designer and publication designer. His name is Tony Venny. So he is responsible for the paper quality, um, the covers, the quality of the images that are in this publication. And he had a solid relationship with a local printer that's um, in Maryland. So we work with uh, Schmidt's Press. And I'm very happy that the, um, you know, to, to, to again, like support a local economy, to have it printed here. It would have been a lot cheaper to print it in China. And we chose not to do that for, you know, for, for our own uh, ethical reasons. So um, we created this first issue. And suddenly... Um, 3,000 copies of this magazine were going to be sent to me. And my husband was like, where are you going to put these? <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know. Can we just have them at our house? And he was like, no. <laughs> and these boxes are heavy. They're like 40-pound boxes. So I've, I've definitely, it's become like part of my workout routine, carrying these boxes. But, um, <laughs> and I was also like, how, he's like, how are you going to get these into the world? And I was like, oh, I hadn't thought about that either. So suddenly <laughs> there were problems to solve and they were all solved through uh, relationships with other people. So I reached out to Maryland Art Place and asked if we could have a launch party for the first issue and they said yes. Um, at that time, Union Brewing supported us with a donation of, of beer for the party. 
And we sold tickets. We raised funds. That way we distributed about 500 magazines that night. The party sold out. And I'd never thrown a giant party before. I had no idea (laughs) what would go into all of this. Um, But it ended up being a really um, fantastic evening where so many different people all came together that aren't usually in a room together in Baltimore. People were dancing, people were drinking, people were reading magazines in the middle of a crowded party on the dance floor. And um, it just made me realize that suddenly we were onto something and that the magazine itself is, is really satisfying to make, but it's also all of these relationships and connections um, and camaraderie that it, that it uh, created at that time and, and continues to create that I think is really its value beso- you know, beyond its um, aesthetics and beyond the, the smart writing that goes into it. What are some of the challenges when you came out to print? I mean, you've got to find advertisers. I mean, advertisers are hard to come by. And this is 2013, 14, 15, during that time period. I mean... Everybody's on dot com. Everybody's online. Digital marketing is the way to go. How did you convince it? I mean, this I'm looking at the folks right now, all the years of the magazine, and they are beautiful. When I mean beautiful, I mean you can tell they're up there with Vogue. There I mean it just looks very, very classy, clean looking. And how'd you convince? Like what what is your sales pitch? I mean, you're telling me you got I mean, I, there's so many great advertisers in the magazine. But how'd you get them to convince they believe in this? So the first issue didn't have any advertising. So that was the proof of concept. And then after the first issue, um, we raised some money from the party, some from sales of issue one. So that that covered about half of it. And um, for issue two, I did uh, start to reach out to advertisers. And what I was sort of surprised to discover was a lot of these larger institutions who could afford to buy an ad that's that's expensive. I mean, our like you said, the the print quality is high. We we spend a lot of money um, just on printing and 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 paper and image quality, and 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 that's really important to us. And um, it's not necessarily the best business model <laughs> in terms of trying to make a lot of money. But um, what I have found is that. Um, if you're, if you're doing the right work and you're, you know, uh, reaching out to the right individuals or the right institutions or organizations, it's going to be a fit. It's going to work out. Um, I don't think I'm even an adequate salesperson. I think I'm terrible at, at selling anything, at least related to myself. I'm, I'm happy to sell things, um, for other people or for my city. Um, but if you notice in all of the issues, all of the advertisers are really um, art-specific. They are all entities that support artists and art communities, so they are in line with my values and our values as an organization. So we have uh, museums, we have art advocacy organizations and nonprofits. Um, we occasionally have like an art-based business, like framing, um, occasionally something related to tourism, hotels. Um, but for the most part, it's... Um, you know, entities that are colleges and, you know, educational institutions as well. But, you know, you're never going to see plastic surgery or real (laughs) estate. You're just not going to see it. Um, And part of it is about how these ads look. It's really important for me that the ads, you know, if if the publication is at the the level of, of art, the ads need to look really 
beautiful too. Um, so sometimes we actually design or redesign ads for our clients just so, you know, the, what we say, and I think it's true, is like it's not going to resonate with our readers if it doesn't look a certain way. If the, if the production or aesthetics are not high enough, it's not going to resonate. So I, I have this idea maybe someday in the future that like brands will partner with us and we can partner them with visual artists based in Baltimore that would like create specific ads or images. Um, that hasn't happened yet, but I think it could be really cool. And, um, you know, I'm an, I'm a magazine addict. I collect way too many of them. My husband would like to throw away a lot of them. <laughs> um, but in your sort of high powered magazines and fashion magazines, even the ads are very beautiful. Mm -hmm. Um, and a lot of them are shot and art directed by artists. So, um, I think that could be sort of an interesting next step for us. So we'll see what happens. All right. So we, we, we got the magazine out. It's, it's, people are loving the party. People are, are excited about Be More Art. You know, you're taking it through and people are like, all right, you're on to something. You're on to something. People, subscriptions are going up. Most likely, right? Well, we didn't have subscriptions no. in the beginning. Okay, you didn't have okay. that was something we just started during COVID. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean subscriptions are really a service mm -hmm. and it's actually a lot of work. So in until um until we got past issue five, it was still just me as the only full time employee. I had a, a number of freelancers and some part time people. Um, and so I was able in I wanna say twenty eighteen to hire two full-time people. And then in uh, 2020, I hired a, th a third full-time person. So now there's like a solid team, which is, which is amazing because, um, yeah. So we, we put this print journal out twice a year in fall and spring, and then we're producing content online almost every day. But, um, yeah, I, it was sort of like, it, it got to a point where I couldn't keep up with it. It had grown to a point where, um, you know, I wasn't doing a good job anymore and it was really frustrating to, you know, you're doing the party, you're doing the events, creating the partnerships, trying to find, uh, you know, local businesses that share your values and, um, you know, create these events. So it's really not any one thing. It's almost like a community of people and, um, you know, we would do these parties for each issue. So every issue has a theme. So like, for, um, you know, I'm looking at issue uh, seven, this is issue seven archive. And so that, no, it's eight, sorry. Um, I can't keep track anymore. That one we hosted at the Pratt Library and it was beautiful. And, um, you know, it was open bar and we had a fantastic DJ and people were, you know, taking their fashion photos, um, you know, in the stacks of books. And I mean, that building is just, they'd just finished this crazy, beautiful renovation, um, you know, for the community issue, the pink one that's in front of you. Um, we had it at the Eagle, which was a, a gay leather bar. I think it still exists, but it's under different management. But every party, there's like a dress code. So that one was leather. So we've got, you know, like the president of MICA there, you know, wearing leather pants and um, just. Sounds it, like the Anna Winter party that she has. What's the, what's the one? What's the big party she has at the Met? Every oh, day? the Met Gala? Yeah, it sounds that like That is it. a party. <laughs> I mean, that is a party about clothes. And I, and I do think it is really fun. So like we did one issue that was um, the home issue. And that was at Union Craft Brewing. 
And um, like, what is more comfortable than like ath- athleisure? So right. athleisure was the dress code for that night. It was pizza and beer. And, you know, some people wore kind of over the top, like crazy, like onesie, pajama-y, you know, things and robes and athletic gear. And I mean, that's actually... Kind of fun and fashionable, though. So you understand right now? I'm ready. To, I'm ready to party right now. I know. I'm like, excuse my, excuse my language. I'm like, fuck COVID. I'm ready to go party. I know. I'm ready to go turn up right now. I mean, this sounds like New York City. Like the what you're describing right now sounds like what I see on New York City red carpet at the Met Gala. Because I've heard about these parties. I've heard about them. I mean, is it when I'm going off a little bit? Is it an invite only party or no, how does it, no, no. How do you guys circumvent the tickets? Do you have a allotment of how many tickets you sell? Like, how quickly does the okay? Give us, give us, give us a number. I'm curious. So that, you know this party because I know people are like, damn, it's a good, it's part? a good party. What is this party? Uh, so how many people normally do you have coming? And when do you sell? How quickly do you sell these tickets? And what was like normal the price back in the day when you were selling those? So it's not expensive. I mean. It, for open bar, it's not always open bar, but whenever I can manage it and we get things donated, I, I make it open bar. Because it's like I want it to be fun. Um, I like having an excuse to get dressed up, you know. But no, our tickets, I think they're like $25 or something. Like, and you get a magazine, and we usually distribute about, you know, with the last one we had, I think we, we distributed like 700 magazines in one night. We had about 500 people. And so, I mean, there's always like the people that are in the magazine. So, like, they get a free ticket when I, and a guest, everybody who worked on the magazine, all of our advertisers. So, that's sort of like, you know, there's like a guest list for, for those people to, you know, sort of like thank you and, and honor them and they get to sort of be the celebrities for the night. And then we usually have a couple hundred tickets for sale and they, they go. I mean, I, you know, occasionally I have people that show up and they're like, oh, I didn't get the ticket yet. And it's like, well, just just get one because, you know, we again, some people throw parties to make money on the party and um, that, you know, we usually break even. <laughs> Um, but like my goal is that people have a good time and feel comfortable and, and, you know, it's an exciting, you know, place to be. And, uh, you know, the getting dressed up is certainly part of it. And then we always have, you know, photographers that are taking amazing photos that, that document the night. And, and that's really fun too. That's fun to me. I mean, I mean, that's kind of like the name of my show, No Pixel Dark podcast. And, um, I don't know if I think I told you a little bit about it behind the scenes, but, we had it every, that was a theme every summer. No Pixar Dark podcast part. And we had it for five years in New York City. Running bars out, just being young, dumb, just having fun, spending money. And I just love how what you're talking about, because it, it warms my heart. We did it for 10 years in a row. And it always was over 200 people there. And this, packed. and everybody tells it in like that everybody brings different yeah. people and... And it's like you run into, you know, I had someone who was like, yeah, I went to the party the last time and I ran into like my, my boyfriend from middle school <laughs> and I ran into like my teacher from brr, 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 and I ran into so-and-so from my neighborhood and like, and then all these other people that they had never met before. And, and it's, it is really fun to give people an excuse to get dressed up. Like, um, for the body one, we hosted that at the Parkway Theater, which is amazing. The, just a beautiful, again, the, the location for the event matches the theme of the issue. And then the Baltimore's got so many, you know, gorgeous, iconic 
locations to host an event. And most of them are, you know, they're willing to collaborate with you if you want to write a story about them, which I always do. Um, But the theme was old Hollywood glamour. So like people are wearing like their feather boas and their like sequin gowns and their tuxes and... And then some people are wearing jeans and whatever, but like it's, it's Baltimore. It's fun. It's that mix of people all in a space together and the random conversations you have. And, um, you know, one thing that we started doing before COVID, I discovered that even when I'm at these parties, I'm more comfortable if I'm like working at them. Small talk, random small talk is not really my skill or my passion, but, um, I have this photographer that I I like to work with a lot and she and I started going to these different parties and events around Baltimore and we started this online column called what they're wearing and we would select, you know, like 20 people who were just dressed amazingly and um, she would photograph them and her photos are like, they're like art photos. They're not straight up, like they're not journalistic. They're very beautiful and, um, you know, my rule is we never cut off the shoes And then I would ask them, you know, what are they wearing from head to toe? So we would do this, like the Walters Gala, their ball. Um, We went to like the vintage clothing um, event that happens every year. Just like we could do it at the farmer's market. We could do it at, you know, a gala. But Baltimore just has so much amazing fashion. The clothes are really strong here. And then asking people the questions, like some people are like, oh, I got this on Amazon. But most people are like, oh, this hat was my mother's and, you know, this necklace, my ex-boyfriend gave it to me and I don't talk to him anymore. But, you know, like there's all these stories based in the clothes. So for me, like talking to people, like random people I don't know of all different ages, all different shapes and sizes, all different backgrounds and talking to them about what they're wearing is like this I don't know, just this like intimate way to like make, you know, a connection with people in in just seconds. And most people are happy to talk to you about their shoes. And we'll be right back because we're going to have some hard hitting questions next. About the target audience. Who's you? Who's who's be more hard for? The No Picks After Dark podcast is fueled by Zeke's Coffee. Have you tried their coffee yet? I'm telling you, there is something different about it. Maybe it's because they roast their beans in a fluid coffee roaster which provides the most accurate roasting temperatures and made with love. You will just have to check it out for yourself and try their delicious food while you're at it. Open now for curbside service, carryout, and delivery, and they also do wholesale. Visit Zeke's Coffee at 4719 Harper Road. Open Monday through Friday, 7 a.m. to 6 p.m. and Sunday, 8 to 5 p.m. Kitchen closes at 3 p.m. Or visit Zeke'sCoffee.com and you too can be fueled by Zeke's. And folks, we are back, and uh, again, we're here with Miss Kara Ober, uh, you know, the founder of Be More Art. Uh, just an amazing, amazing collection of art magazines that I, I'm absolutely falling in love with. Uh, I mean, my mom came to my house and was like, "This is the this is the jam." I'm like, "Really, mom?" She's like, "I'm gonna take one of these home with me." I said, "Okay, I can, all right, all right." So, and it just it just testament of what's going on, and I'm so excited again to have her on the show, and so. Target audience, you know, how, what are you, who are you reaching out to out here? Uh, I know the art community knows who you are. You have 35,000 followers on Instagram. 35,000. That's big. People, that means people are out there. People are looking. People are checking you out. When you guys post things, there's thousands of likes. 
thousands of likes, okay? <laughs> and so who is your target audience? Because I've had some really, really cool people that I've known that I know who didn't know who you were and didn't know your audience. And they're like, this is a cool magazine. You know, I put some, I put like 10 people and they're like, what do you know? Aaron, I can't wait to hear this episode. So who's your target audience? Who are you going after? Is it me? I mean, I'm a young adult male, college educated. You know, I, I like art, you know, but I don't know where to go. I mean, there's Walters. That's all the, I mean, I went to one of the things that, now I'm, I'm, you're going to get mad at me because I'm, gonna, I'm not going to know which name this place is, but it's over by um, the art gallery over by John Hopkins. Yeah, the Baltimore Museum of Art. Yes. And I went to a really cool night party there where they had like a night at, night at the, and that was cool. For me, I was all about that. Drinks, hanging out, looking at art. That's my scene. You know, I felt like I was kind of like the bootleg sex in the city scene. Like I'm just hanging around. I got all dapper and dressed up because it was a cool thing to do. Does Baltimore have that? I don't know. Can we keep one? Can we bring that back? But I know that's not on you, but what I'm saying is in general, who's your target audience? Who are you going after? And I see like a lot of beautiful black people on the cover, but they're all in art. I don't, I don't, I don't know any of these people. So go ahead. I'll let you touch. Like I, I gave a lot of questions, hard hitting questions now. <laughs> um, so there's this thing that I feel like uh, art school professors will tell their students and that it's, you, sh you really shouldn't make your art for somebody else. You shouldn't make your art in order that someone else will like it. If you're, if you're making a thing and you're making it in, in order to, you know, to attract people and you're trying to do things so that they'll, they'll like you or like whatever it is you're doing, that's, that's sort of the wrong way to go about it. And, and I think because um, my background is as an artist, that that was sort of the, the way that I approached this magazine. So um, in, in, a, in a very strange way, I think making art is incredibly selfish because you're doing this sort of extravagant thing that the world doesn't necessarily need with a capital N. Um, but you need it and you, you want this thing to exist in the world and maybe you don't know exactly why, but you sort of put your, you put yourself and your heart and your soul into this, this thing. Um, so that is to say, you know, this is not a, the, the smartest, uh, business, <laughs> business approach, but I, I do think that the things that resonate with me as an artist, as a consumer, as a Baltimorean, as an artist, as a, as a citizen, um, resonate with, with other people. So it, for me, it, it needs to always feel authentic, right? That's, that's sort of the key to, to all of this. Um, these artists that we're working with, I mean, I'm never going to write a story about someone that I think is an asshole, I'm just not. <laughs> I don't care how, you know, famous or successful they they seem to be. So no divas, um, no jerks. And um, but it, just in terms of, you know, making it accessible to an audience, I really think in general the art world has not done itself a favor in terms of the language that galleries use, the sort of snobby um, vibe that a lot of events can give off just the sense of superiority and in, in the art world and, and artists in general that it's a stereotype but it exists for a reason so I think um, for me with my background in teaching high school again that was an incredibly humbling experience every single day I'm in front of these you know 
15 to 17 year olds who they don't give a shit about art. You know, they care about, you know, getting laid or their friends or the gossip or what have you. So if I can get them to pay attention and to care about this art, you know, I've really accomplished something. So, you know, part of it is like focusing on the the gossip and the sex aspects of it, because that's certainly there in the art world. But it's also thinking about like, what do we all have in common? What do we all care about? What do we all want to see happen? Um, in particular, you know, in this city of Baltimore. And um, for me, after we went into print, there was sort of this decision, this turning point where um, there was some suggestions that we expand our audience to become national because the art world is global, right? All the all the most famous artists and, and all the collectors, this is a global elite network of people and that's where the money is, right? So um, that was a consideration and I ultimately felt like, no, there is enough going on right here in Baltimore to stay focused here. I don't need to hire people to write about New York and LA to bring in those readers. I think those readers should be paying attention to what's happening in Baltimore because Baltimore (laughs) has so many incredible world-class artists. Like we may not have a market here yet. Um, This is something that that should happen and and needs to happen. and, And it involves like, an intense collaboration between a lot of different entities, and, and I'm here to see that through. But um, I just totally spaced out. No, you're, you're good. You're talking about your target audience, and <laughs> it's, you're, it's you're talking about your target audience and who you're going after. I mean, well, it, it should be something that your mom can can feel excited about. It, you know, it should be something that like your kid opens this magazine and is like, "Ooh, what is this?" I mean, I feel like the best art is something you know where. Old people, young people, people with no education, people with lots of education, like they can all benefit from paying attention to this art and thinking about it and looking at it and sort of delighting in the way that it's made and what it has to say. So Baltimore has a lot of educated people. There's a lot of people that move to Baltimore specifically for meds and eds. That's where most people work. And those people currently, you know, have maybe not a huge budget to purchase art, but they have something. And um, I feel like if I keep putting it in front of them, if I keep putting this, these opportunities to engage with art, to live with art, to get to know the artists of their place and time, if I, if I keep making it, um, you know, beautiful and accessible and available to them, they're going to come around. And, and I think that people who choose to live in Baltimore, they, they make a choice because they want to live this sort of creative lifestyle. They want to do something different. They don't want to be in New York. They don't want to be in Austin. They want to be right here for a reason. So the idea that you can invest in something that's already, you know, really successful and, and really excellent and be a part of that movement here, I think that that's really the, the message that I would like people to, to take away from this publication and, and the work that my team is doing. So <clears throat> I read about Connect, uh, the Connect and Collect series, and that's a bringing national artists to Baltimore. Tell the listeners a little bit about that. Um, okay, so part of this whole conundrum in terms of art is, you know, 
we need people to buy it. There hasn't historically been a real strong market in Baltimore. I see a lot of awesome galleries open and then close. Um, I'm seeing art for whom the audience is primarily other artists, and that's not going to generate income. And, and again, this is not about the status of money. It's about artists being able to feed themselves and to grow and to become better artists and to become better known and for this you know, reputation of, of Baltimore to be elevated. Um, but, uh, so for Connect and Collect, we, I, <laughs> um, I work with one other person. I started out this way. Um, I had been taking people on these studio tours of Baltimore. So the Baltimore Museum of Art got a new director and, uh, there's this woman in Miami named Mira Rubel, who's this like world known, world renowned collector who had bought a hotel in Baltimore and one of their trustees asked me if I would do a studio tour for them. So I took them to 22 artist studios in two days. Um, and after that tour, uh, both people said the same thing. They were like, this art here is so collectible. It's so good. I had no idea. I mean, Amy Sherald was like the first studio we went to. So there's that. But there's so many, you know, other artists. That hold, up, are- hold up, hold up, hold up. Amy Sherald, just, just for the folks who may not know, you got you got gotta give Amy Sherrill. People can know you know who she is. But she's gonna tell her who Amy Sherrill is. So Amy Sherrill is the painter who painted Michelle Obama's portrait. So I didn't give you issue five, but she's our our cover our cover model on on issue five, and she looks really beautiful. So um, so yeah, she, now okay. she's this like super world famous stuff. Her one of her paintings just went up for auction last month. It sold for four million dollars. She's represented by Hauser and Worth in New York. So she's now in New York um, from Baltimore, folks. From well, she, she Baltimore. spent like twenty years here. She's she's originally from um, I, I believe Georgia, but she came here to go to Micah. She lived know. here for like twenty years. Um, so we can claim her then, right? We do. All right, let's claim we her. We do. Baltimore loves to claim Amy Sherald. We love her. All right, so we'll go back to you. So there is, you know, everybody wants to, um, you know, there's there's so many people, myself included, who are like, oh, why didn't I buy an Amy Sherald when I could have? Damn it. And then there's people I know who did, right? Mm. So, like, they have these, you know, not only do they have the, you know, the pride of knowing that they bought something before it was world-renowned. They supported her and got her to the next level, you know, and now there's really very few artists, you know, as famous as she is. She's, she's really in this, like, super elite upper level, but there are other artists in Baltimore who, with the right kind of support and investment, and by that I mean collectors buying their work, museums buying their work, they can be the next global art name, you know, like it can happen. And, um, but we have to invest now, right? We have to be a little bit reckless. We have to be risk averse. It doesn't mean we have to spend tens of thousands of dollars. I don't, this hasn't tied in at all to connecting. No, it's all good. It's all good. um, So Jeffrey Kent is the person that I, um, invented this program with and so he is an artist he's a collector he was the first person to sort of you know work with amy she ran at a studio at a studio space and gallery he ran for many years called the sub-basement artist studio and so um you know he helped back this person who is now this global art superstar and there are other artists who are sort of poised to be there so we need to buy their work now 
right? Before, And it's not like we're buying it because it's going to go up in value. We're buying it because we love it and it's really good and we want to live with it. But there's also something really thrilling about knowing that this piece that you have may be worth a gazillion dollars one day and not even because you're going to sell it, you know, it's because you invested, you know, you believed you were part of this success story. You helped to make it happen. And that's, that's pretty incredible. That's really exciting. So this was sort of the, the, con- the concept behind Connect and Collect. It started from the studio tour. Um, Jeffrey and I did all these interviews for like a year. We just interviewed all these different collectors in the region. And we was like, why do you collect? What do you collect? What's in your collection? And um, a lot of them said that they, they live here, but they don't collect here. Mm. So how does that make any sense? That's crazy. There's so much good art here. But, and in a lot of cases, in some cases, some of the series collectors would go to the art show, follow the artist, but then they would wait to buy until the artist had a show in New York because then that validated them. Then they could buy the work now that it's validated by this market that we don't have here. You know, instead of like building a market here, we're actually sending our dollars to New York where there already is a market. So to me, that's, that's incredibly frustrating. So what would it take to cultivate a whole new group of young collectors who don't have a ton of money to spend, but they want to be a part of this. How do we build the relationships between artists and the people who can support them that are not artists? And then how do we engage people who are already involved in collecting? They're established collectors. Nobody likes to call themselves a collector, by the way. That's like a, a tainted word or something. People, I'm not a real collector. Like, no, if you buy art, you are. You're a collector. Mm-hmm. <laughs> End of story. Anyone can do it. Um, and it's, you know, it's a challenge, especially right now. Money is tight, you know, except for the, the richest of people who are making even more money. But, um, you know, you can't live in it. You can't eat it. You can't wear it. So it's not, you know, buying art isn't essential for your, for your survival. Um, but it really is for your quality of life and maybe for your soul. So, um, you know, so we designed the speaker series, essentially. And, and now we have a gallery space. So people can come, people can engage with artists. A lot of this is about relationships. It's not about a one-time purchase. It's about getting to know artists who live and work in your city and supporting them when it feels right. It's also like learning you can put art on layaway. You can have a payment plan. You don't have to have $10,000 in order to get a really good piece of art. Everybody's got walls. Everybody has, a, you know, something to hang on those walls. If you want to hang posters, I mean, that's still graphic design. Posters are cool. Um, but there's something really beautiful about having work up on your walls and knowing the person who made it, knowing the story behind it, and, um, like, living with that, having that sort of reinforce your your existence on a daily basis. It's, it's priceless. Thank you. I'm excited. I mean, I look forward to hearing, hearing more about this. And when things open back up, I would love to somehow we get with the artists or whoever you guys bring this, bring into the city and sit down and talk with them possibly on the show at that, that's a possibility going forward. Uh, that'd be something great to partner with. 
Oh, can I can I just say that right now we're doing it on Zoom, um, and typically it's it's with artists from the region, but it's artists who are um, who have built like a national following. So we're not we're not typically bringing artists in from other places, although we have brought in some curators and some collectors. Um, in the beginning, it was a speaker series in person at Motorhouse, and it was like a $10 ticket, and then it included a drink at the bar. So we wanted to encourage people to hang out <laughs> and chat. Um, now we're doing them every first Thursday on Zoom. So Jeffrey and I are hosting these events. Um, we're featuring different Baltimore galleries and artists and having a conversation you know, about the work, but also how do you visit the gallery? How do you invest? How do you buy the work? So... So we are continuing it um, via Zoom, which isn't my favorite medium, but um, for now, it seems like it's that's that's the best we can do. So we're going to keep doing it. And you get a bigger you get a bigger audience on Zoom also, probably because if anybody can check in and check out, and we'll, we'll put the link in my in the bio when it comes out, so we can make sure we update every time a new artist or when even new release coming out, it'll be there. So we'll make sure we get that taken care of for you. So with COVID. Everything going on, um, I would be remiss if I don't mention you had a huge article in your, and it came out, and everybody I've spoken to is like, wow, you're going to talk to her. Are you guys going to talk about her COVID situation? You know, and I said, you know, we could bring it up for two couple seconds, and um, you were one of the first people that a lot of people in Baltimore knew that who had a COVID that was known around Baltimore that, like, wow, she and you opens your soul to the world. I read the article and I've had to read it a couple of times because it's heartwarming. Uh, the pictures that were taken were heartwarming. I mean, <laughs> I mean, this my is like, my husband was like, why did you put such bad pictures of yourself in there? I was like, I was sick. Yeah. And so, I mean, <laughs> give us a brief, I mean, you know, nothing too long, but just, you know, you wrote about it and it was very courageous of you to write about your, but it was great that people could understand how serious this was. Yeah, so it was, I mean, it, it feels like it was so long ago. It was last March, and it was basically the first week everything shut down. I got very sick. Um, I didn't know, you couldn't get any tests anywhere. Like, that was part of the whole thing, the frustration. Um, you know, I was very, very sick for a week. I was in the hospital for four days, and I still didn't get my COVID results for like two weeks after that. So, you know, luckily, I... I hadn't been around too many people before them, but I, I'd been around, you know, enough that it was, I mean, I was terrified that I was going to get my parents sick. Um, my, but they, you know, my parents did not get sick. No one in my household got sick. And I think in part it was because my husband has like a, a HEPA filter, like air filter thing that he put in our bedroom <laughs> immediately, like with me. And then they just kind of stayed away from me. Um, but in terms of writing about it, um, I mean, I still think there is some, some stigma around COVID. There's, there are people who have it that aren't telling people or they didn't want to tell people they had it because they didn't want to be like shunned or something. So that was, that was certainly a, a concern for me that like, I didn't want to make things difficult for my family. I didn't want them to feel vulnerable, but, um, I did, I just did a social media post when I was in the hospital and I just wanted people to know because the week before I had gotten sick, I'd, I'd seen a lot of different people and I felt like it was the right thing to do, um, just to let people know. Um, 
So that was sort of the first step. And then um, when I got out of the hospital, I was stuck in a room by myself for two weeks. My family wasn't allowed in there. It was just me and my dog. So um, writing was sort of the only thing I could do that felt uh, productive in any way. So for me, it was like therapy. And um, But yeah, I think the timing of that and like just the general... Um, the fear around COVID was so huge. And I, I didn't, you know, I, I went into detail about like how from day to day it really changed and how sick I was and um, specific symptoms that people didn't even really know about um, at that time. So that, that was pretty crazy in terms of the, the traffic and the, I think it, it, it did break our website for a couple hours, but we fixed hey. it. <laughs> hey, I, I get it. When I, <clears throat> I released an episode of that and that, broke me records for downloads and listens and that was in the beginning also so i get it so we are happy that you're here and living flash we are really appreciative that you made it through and you told your story really did so now we're gonna go on to my favorite part of the show rapid fire who are your top favorite top five artists or writers you can combine them top five artists or or writers whatever you want to do you can do three, three artists, three, two writers, whatever you, whatever choices. Okay. So my absolute favorite artist in the whole wide world is Louise Bourgeois. She is no longer in the world. Um, but she was the one who, she liked those giant metal spiders. She did a lot of like weaving. She did a lot of drawings. Um, but for me, there's like a certain... Uh, power and, and rawness in like this like... like I, I'm a woman. Fuck you if you don't like it. Deal with it. Um, so she's she's my all time favorite. Um, and then other favorites. I'm trying to think. Like I, it should be <laughs> it should be people from Baltimore. So I'm thinking about who's on my walls, who's in my collection at home. And um, right now, some of the pieces on my walls. Uh, one is uh, Makita Ahuja, who is a fantastic painter. Um, I have a few pieces by Zoe Charlton, by Elena Volkova. Um, trying to think who else. I have I have a lot. Uh, Jill Fannin's one of my favorite photographers as well. Um, I mean, when I look around at like all the photography and, and art in these magazines, there's there's so much good work. Um, Amy Boo McCreesh, Aletha Devane. Um, I have more. I have lists. Um, so those are some of my favorite artists. And then in terms of who I'm reading, um, I've been reading a ton of essays by Nora Ephron recently. And uh, Ann Patchett is my favorite novelist. I read a lot of novels. All right. All right. What artists, dead or alive, would you want to work with? I mean, I feel like I already kind of am. <laughs> okay you okay know? like I'm working with a ton of artists and okay. and I have to say like the great joy of the job is like me coming up with some crazy ass idea and then being like who could I do this idea with like it's not as interesting to do it by myself everything we do is is very collaborative and I think people see these magazines and they're like oh so-and-so's photos so-and-so's story but it's not like that it's actually like it's very collaborative and we're all sort of in well what if we look like this so what if we what if it's this person and they do this thing and it's like commissioning them but it's all it's like almost like giving assignments like a teacher but being very involved gotcha gotcha so have you ever been to art bizel art basel basel sorry basel yes tell us about that i mean is it is it is it as wild as people see it on tv 
I mean, it's not really wild. It's like a giant. I mean, if you've been to the Baltimore Convention Center, right? It's like a convention center, but in Miami, and it's full of it's full of very expensive art. But the art's kind of like all crowded together, and like the booth walls are kind of like temporary and it's got like gray carpet and mm. the champagne's like $20 for a glass and I'm not really selling it am I it's, no, it's it, okay. is it a good networking event for people no okay no, no and we so I I have this thing with a couple of friends of mine I mean I've gone because I want to see the art right. um but I always kind of feel a little bummed like this is where museums come to buy art and this art is going to look so much better when it's hanging on an the wall of a museum with like space around it because it's all crowded together. Uh, but like, if you're just a regular person, a collector, like the galleries won't talk to you. So we, I have this joke with a bunch of friends where we take photos of people working in galleries, like pretending to type on their laptops and ignoring people in the booth. Like they only talk to you if they know who you are and you're like a rich collector. Wow. So, I mean, not, you know, not, I'm sorry, Art Basel. I love you. I, I, it's fun. But um, what people don't understand is so Art Basel was kind of the big important fair. And it is really important for, you know, museums and, and the top collectors in the world. And for artists, it's a priority to have their work in museums because then it's going to be publicly available. It stands the test of time. Like, I get it. Being in someone's house is not as valuable to a certain caliber of artists. It's fine. But like Art Basel... Um, there's all these other smaller fairs and it's almost like the circle of all different fairs. Like there's the young artist fair and there's the outsider artist fair and there's like the hipster artist fair where like most of the galleries are from Brooklyn. There's, um, you know, there's like all different fairs. So Art Basel is like the center fair, the biggest one and the biggest budget one, but then there's all these different ones. So depending on what you're interested in, you can find it there. And there's tons of parties. There's tons of events. You're at the beach. It's December. There's palm trees. It's sunny. There's champagne. There's cute shoes. And um, so my favorite art fair at Art Basel is Untitled. Untitled is this beautiful uh, white tent with super high ceilings, like super, like birds are flying around in there and it's on the beach mm. and you can see the beach and people kind of come into the fair with sand on their feet. And, um, it's like not the most expensive galleries, but also not the cheapest galleries. It's sort of like this mid-level serious gallery where, you know, like these are the artists that are going to become like the next the next names to follow. So I feel like that's a really good place to start a collection if you want something serious um, that's going to increase in value. And, and I like supporting those galleries as well. So full disclosure, um, they usually host a media thing. And so I've done some like on-site podcasting and stuff with them just because I just like them. Nice, nice. Yeah, I'm glad, glad you gave us a good breakdown of that. What is your definition of an artist? Um, an artist is a creative problem solver, and I don't think you need um, to go to art school to be an artist. You don't need a degree. You you know you might not even work in the arts, but you're someone for whom um, any problem that you know sh that you need to solve, you come up with the solution that's like nobody else does, right? And it and it works, or maybe it fails. Maybe it like spectacularly fails, but. Um, you're someone who sees the world in a different way 
than, than most other people. You see possibilities and potential and strength where other people don't. And I think those people are, are really the people that I want our, our leaders, especially our government leaders, to, to listen to and pay attention to. What is the best advice you've ever received? Sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I am not, um, I'm not good at following directions. Um, so pretty much anytime anybody tells me to do anything, I just do the opposite thing. I, I'm not saying this is a, a good way or a, <laughs> a productive way to, to act, but um, I, I, I kind of think like the best advice just comes from within and a lot of it is about giving yourself permission to do the things that you really want to do that maybe you feel like you shouldn't do or they're you know it's not going to work out um so yeah just doing those doing those things that have no um logical or rational or financial payoff at doing those things you just want to do because you want to do them what inspires you every day um, I mean, even, um, when I was focused on, uh, being a, being an artist and making paintings and drawings as my primary, uh, medium, um, the, the world around me is, uh, always what has inspired me. And, um, I, I always think that, uh, truth is stranger than fiction and the, the weirdest, craziest things happen to you and the least likely uh, moments when you least likely, you know, when you least expect them. And, um, so for me, my, my artwork was very collage or is very collage based. I'm collecting images and text from, you know, magazines and movies and dictionaries and posters and other art and NPR and whatever poetry, um, so, and, and for, for me, uh, making these magazines, it's certainly inspired by the, the people and the places that are around me. And the next time this magazine will be out, let, let, let the folks know. So we just released issue 10. So that was kind of a big deal. And, um, so that came out this past December and, um, our next one, issue 11 should be out in May. So we do the print journal twice a year. In the past, it's been fall and spring. Things got messed up with COVID, so we ended up releasing our spring issue this summer and our fall issue in, in December, and it's still um, it's still on the way. Um, as you mentioned, we, we created a subscription service for people, so we didn't have one of those before because in the past, we would just send hundreds home with people um, from our parties, and then we have this excellent network of local retailers that we work with. So again, it's all about these relationships. Um, so Trove was one of the first places to sell our magazine. So that's, we're really bummed that it's closed, but, um, a ton of independent booksellers, Atomic, Greedy Reads, uh, Good Neighbor. Um, I've, I've heard rumors that in Hamilton, your, your neighbor, our, uh, Tartuga is going to start carrying them. Hey, we can, we're going to get it up here. We're going to, cause we, you know, we are the, we're the stepchilds of Baltimore city. We need to get that get out of here. First. You guys have it going on though. You've got your coffee, you've got your fine dining, you've got your, uh, you know, regular dining, you've got your yoga, you've got your... We're taping here at Function 
co-working studios. Yeah, Function is gorgeous. A nice spot. It's beautiful. So for I didn't know about Function before you invited me here, and it's filled with artwork by by artists that I know and respect. It's a co-working space for creative people. It's got cute furniture. It's super comfy. And it just seems like this great um, hub of, of interesting creative people. So it seems like a great place to work. Yeah, like I said, and we're, we're excited and ecstatic for you to come over here to hang out with us and chill and just hang out. And again, we really appreciate everything. Where can we find you on TikTok. I'm joking, but not TikTok. Nah. But you know what I mean. You uh, know how so- old I am. Social media. Social media. Where can we find you guys? So it, um, so Instagram has been has been good to us. I mean, I think because we're image-based, it's image-based. So uh, just uh, be more art, B-M-O-R-E-A-R-T at Instagram. Um, I do my own thing. I care over um, be more art one on Twitter. Uh, I think on Facebook, it's Baltimore Contemporary Art. Um, and we kind of use all these different mediums for, for different, um, you know, for different things. And then on, uh, for our Zooms and our videos, we have a Vimeo page. I think that's all of it. And shout out to one of your writers. I always see her everywhere in all her own Instagram because it's always popping. It's Terry Henderson. Is that? Yes. She's always popping on this. So she's caught my eye too with people that's out there doing big things in Baltimore. Terry's fantastic. Terry launched uh, an Instagram called Black Collagists. So she's a curator. Um, funny story, we hired her last March to run the, the Connecting Collect gallery space, which is uh, 2519 North Charles, the beautiful mural. And um, because of COVID, she hasn't been able to curate any exhibitions there, but she was um, already writing for Be More Art. So she's really channeling all of her creative energy, her support for artists into the writing. And then now what she's working on at the gallery is a series of videos projected on our front windows that are very beautiful. And you can see them from Charles Street going, going by in front of the building. Nice, nice. Folks, again, no picture dark podcast. We bring we bring the heavy hitters in Baltimore. We make sure, you know what? We want my listeners to learn about Baltimore. You know, uh, people are from California, New York, you know, Philly, DC, and uh, they love the show, and they want they love learning more about Baltimore. And I'm I'm here to hopefully be a vessel to get you guys to come here, learn, understand the art scene. I just got you, Katie, here. You know, I, I'm blown away. I'm, I mean, amazing experience, and hopefully we will hear Miss Care over again soon. Hopefully we can we, we can do this quarterly. I'm, I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to hustle with her. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. Because remember, she says she doesn't listen to anybody, so we got to figure out how we can finagle that possibly. But again, folks, thank you so much. This is a part of the Women's History Month part, part of this, and we are really celebrating women doing big things out here. Love, peace, happiness, we're out, and love.